Nothing fills the void like the company of a true friend. None but a true friend can help us to embrace the void. Hello, good evening, and remain indoors. Have you tried kill all the poor? You are not a Buddhist. You are in a cult. Suck it, Nietzsche. The wave returns to the ocean. Where it came from. And where it's supposed to be. Not bad, Buddhists. Warning. This podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Welcome, friends, to episode 143 of Embrace the Void, where we are both merry and quite contrary. I am your host, Aaron, and this week we've got another great installment in our Better Know a Philosopher series, so let's get feministing. All life ends in death, which we, as a species, are cursed with knowing, resulting in... Something. My guest this week is Simone Webb, a PhD student in gender studies at UCL. Simone, would you like to say hi to the void? Hello, void. <laughs> yep, I, I'm Simone. Um, I'm doing my PhD in gender studies, but I'm kind of looking at philosophy and the history of philosophy and feminism um, with my thesis focusing on Michel Foucault and Mary Assel in dialogue. Interesting. How do you, how would you say you self-identify politically? What are your sort of focuses, interests, ideas? Uh, I self-identify politically as uh, vaguely anarcho-communist. Philosophically, I am interested in um, what's known as philosophy as a way of life um, and philosophy as a way of living or a way of transforming the self, um, which links to my interest in Foucault um, and his development of the ethic of the self. Mm-hmm. It's that sense of the ethic of the self that I've kind of gone on to identify in Astle, um, and it's one of the things I'm most interested in about her. Do you associate that kind of approach with things like virtue theory as well? Yeah, a little bit. Um, I think virtue theory is... can it, it's relevant to this ethic of the self, but they're not necessarily the same thing. So an ethic of the self doesn't necessarily identify kinds of virtues to be developed. Um, it feels like a far more um, loose and self-defined thing. Um, so for Foucault, um, mm-hmm. Foucault's ethic of the self isn't interested in telling you what kind of self you ought to be. Um, mm-hmm. It's about developing yourself in some ways along your own parameters it's okay so more existentialist kind of approach to that, that kind yeah of yeah in, in a sense interesting um so before we dive into and i do want to talk about foucault a little bit i am curious um just because you know real world scenario being what it is everyone dealing with their situations i'm curious to get a little bit of people's experiences over the past semester i just wrapped up um what was a very challenging uh semester with the transition and everything um and i'm curious how things went on on your end and what your feelings are about like what comes next for your academic experience yeah so last term was an odd one because 
Um, in the UK, we had a bunch of strikes going on in universities. So first mm. we had the strikes, then just to say we're finishing off, um, teaching went online because of the pandemic. So there were quite a lot of things I was expecting to teach or hoping to teach that ended up being modified or dropped due to the strikes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I had that kind of bit of panic of rapidly trying to work out how to teach the history of philosophy in online methods. Mm-hmm. Um, since the term's over, um, it's been less difficult because um, I've been doing exam marking and that's a lot easier to do online. Mm-hmm. But certainly there's a lot of uncertainty for me now um, going into next year because, you know, I've been relying for the last couple of years on teaching assistant work at King's College London. And now there's a general freeze on GTA hiring. Um, right. So there's no information about how many GTAs are going to be hired or when we might know if GTAs are going to be hired. Um, so at the moment, the next year is a bit of a void for me mm-hmm. um, as I'm coming to the end of my PhD with no clear sense of teaching work available to keep me afloat oh that's rough <laughs> yeah there's there was uh i think 20 percent across the board cuts at our school as well and they had wow. to refigure a lot of things and they've done their best to, i think try to you know like distribute the the suffering in such a way where um you know people aren't going to be totally left out in the cold but um it is unnerving about what comes next certainly and i i'm just about to start a phd program in the fall so um i'm very curious what that process is going to be like um so good yeah. luck to you with with the fi- with figuring that stuff out that's oh that's scary times um so so you mentioned Foucault, and I'm, of course, probably going to butcher the name's pronunciation as compared to the way that you're properly going to pronounce it. Um, but I wanted to do this maybe as a little bit as a warm-up uh, before we get to our main event. Um, I was exposed to, like, next to no Foucault in my strictly analytic <laughs> philosophical upbringing. Um, and my, my understanding is that you're interested in, in later Foucault. So I guess, wonder, mm-hmm. could you give us, like, an elevator pitch of what it is to, what it is to be Foucault? Like, what do you think of the main ideas that you take away from Foucault and that what about sort of later Foucault is especially valuable? Yeah, so it's interesting you say you weren't exposed to Foucault in your analytic upbringing because I wasn't either. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I studied philosophy um, at Oxford as an undergraduate and I think Foucault's name came up in maybe one of my modules. Um, mm-hmm. And I actually only really discovered him properly during my PhD. Um, he wasn't where I'd intended to end up but so I came to him through the philosophy as a way of life stuff um so I got to Mm -hmm. him through Pierre Adeau um Mm -hmm. who's who's a French scholar who really emphasized the role of philosophy as a way of life in ancient philosophy and then my supervisor pointed me on to Foucault who um whose later work is really influenced by Adeau Mm -hmm. um I mean, more generally, uh, I mean, I guess you'd associate Foucault's major points with stuff like his work on punishments, prisons, madness and sexuality. Um, And and I think across the board in those areas, he does a lot of work to destabilise what we take to be kind of given truths about things. So, you know, the, the... 
assumptions about why we have prisons or what they're for. So it kind of traces the history of punishment, um, kind of challenges what we take to be kind of the nature of the penal system. Mm-hmm. Um, work on sexuality has perhaps come become um, almost the most absorbed into a lot of mainstream thought. Um, again, sort of detailing the history of um, sexuality as a as a discourse, um, and again showing its historical contingency, um, as opposed to being some something given that's uh, just the way the world is. Can you give some examples of what he highlighted that you feel like were conventional wisdom at that time, and he exposed them as as just sort of cultural conditioning? Uh, so I guess the idea that you know, we're all born with a sexuality that we discover uh, mm-hmm. and, and the sort of the, the sort of scientific approach to sexuality, which he identifies as um, stemming from 19th century, you know, 19th century sexual discourses. Mm-hmm. Uh, he sort of points to different ways in which sex and kind of sexual behaviour is constituted throughout history. So, And, and I think mm-hmm. that the way that that's become quite absorbed into a lot of mainstream thoughts that a lot of people are now quite comfortable with the idea that um, it's in some way anachronistic to talk about sexualities um, before a certain time, um, mm-hmm. which might be quite a simplistic account of what, his, of what he says. Um, but I think there's certainly something there that's taking up what, what Foucault says. Do you, um, do you think that some of that yeah. bled over into his sort of uh, controversial views about things like um, age of consent laws? Yeah, um, I think definitely. Um, mm-hmm. In seeing those yeah, as, I mean, so, the as a social consent, construct as well. Yeah, um, he has said he says some things about when we talk about children's sexualities and um, prohibitions on those sexualities, that itself can be a form of kind of exercising power over children. Um, mm. and exercising domination. Um, and he, he also said, he, he's, he's not well received by all feminists because he, he also said some kind of controversial things about rape and the extent to which rape is different, is not different from other forms of violence hmm. on his account. So, so the other thing, his, his middle period, earlier middle period is, is known for, apart from this kind of historicizing and showing the contingency of things that we take to be given, is his account of power. So Mm -hmm. on Foucault's account, kind of all relations are power relations. Power isn't necessarily bad. Um, It's productive. Um, It doesn't just repress. Mm -hmm. But in his middle work, um, you you, you get a sort of loss of the agency of the individual subject um, because it presents Mm -hmm. a situation in which everyone, we're, we're all just kind of constructed by these power relations. Um, right. So there's very little room for personal autonomy or agency. What his later work does is kind of transfer the focus back to the subject um, and back to things that the individual subject um, can do, um, especially things that they can do to themselves, to work on themselves or con- to construct themselves. Hmm. So I think in his later work, he kind of turns from the kind of power networks back to the individual and also, I think, becomes a far more ethical thinker. Interesting. So where he's often quite known, I think, or people think of him as being quite amoral or not especially concerned with normative mm-hmm. injunctions, 
which to some extent he's not, he does present a more kind of ethical focus in his later work. I mean, he talks about his own personal morals being kind of morals mm-hmm. of refusal, curiosity and innovation. Um, hmm. Yeah, what would, who would you really... associate him with if you had to put him in like one of the ethics camps in that later period? Uh, I think I'd find it very hard to associate him with any of the major kind of hmm. labelled schools of ethics. Um, because what he's not doing, it's very clear that he's not doing this, is, is trying to tell other people how they should live their lives. Is instead encouraging people to kind of create their own Isaac form of the good, and kind of fashion their own good life. Um, so while mm-hmm. he talks about these elements of his own um, morals, which I guess maybe you could kind of translate them into kind of something analogous to virtues, um, mm-hmm. he's not he's not kind of imposing them on others or saying that others should use his morals he's saying it's not up to me the academic to tell you how to live um it's up to you to kind of collectively work on a vision of the good okay and i think it's that element in his in his ethics that really appeals to me this kind of both his atmosphere of invention and innovation and creating an ethical framework um and this critique of academics and philosophers who try to tell people what the good life is I guess I could see how that would that and all the other things we've discussed would earn him his kind of role as poster boy for postmodernism. Um, what do you think about his role in the sort of public philosophy discourse as the kind of go-to target for one of the major go-to targets? I feel like for making fun of postmodernism. Do you feel like it's it's well deserved? Do you feel like it's just no, misreading? No, no, not really. I mean, I, I think. Firstly, I, I don't think I'd describe him as a postmodernist, but I, okay. I, I feel often when that word's being used in that context, it's not being used with much precision or, or clarity. Um, Generally true. Secondly, I think that he, he gets associated with this sort of generally relativistic, anything goes um, mindset, but I think anyone who actually looks at his texts, especially some of the more historically focused ones like Discipline and Punish or mm-hmm. the History of Sexuality, are going to be most struck by the attention to detail and the kind of historical research that goes into them. And you can hmm. criticise him for um, the claims that some of the claims he makes about about history or, or about um, his interpretation of certain kind of pieces of material but he is quite he's a really sort of close archival researcher um hmm. he's really concerned with the diligently tracing of historical phenomena in a he way he does that doesn't the reading as it were to... sorry he does the reading as it were he, he does he, he does so much reading um and that that seems to me at odds with this image of kind of anything goes approach because i think for him mm-hmm. it's certainly not the case that anything goes i think people buy that from just thinking about the the um uh, continentalist hairstyle we just assume that everything follows from the freewheeling hairstyle <laughs> um, 
Well, that's great. Well, I mean, uh, Foucault famously had no hairstyle in, in oh, one right. sense. He was, so. Yeah, <laughs> which is in its own way, right, an extreme position. Um, <laughs> so, okay, that's great. I think that's more than enough talking about men for this episode. Um, her, her main goal today was to do another of our potentially, I guess, infinite parts, uh, Better Know a Philosopher series. Uh, and today's subject, hopefully, I think, pairs pretty well. We'll pair pretty well with our Wollstonecraft episode and our Beauvoir uh, episodes. Um, so you were particularly interested, as I understand, in Mary Estelle, who has come up on a couple of my lists of, um, female philosophers. There tend to be fairly, fairly short lists, unfortunately. Um, but I think is probably not well known, relatively speaking, compared to the other ones that I just mentioned. Do you want to start by just like telling folks a bit about sort of Mary's life, um, and what major things you feel like shaped her philosophical work? Yeah, absolutely. So Astell um, lives from 1666 to 1731. Um, so she's writing around a century before Wollstonecraft, um, but as you say, isn't nearly as well known as as Wollstonecraft. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, I, I often see Mary Wollstonecraft presented as being in some way the, the first feminist or a first feminist, and yet Astell, I think, is very much a kind of precursor. By about 100 years, um, it seems like, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think there are, we'll, we'll get to it, but I think there are reasons why she's not been taken up with the same enthusiasm as Wollstonecraft. Um, mm-hmm. I think that some of that's to do with her intensely religious um, mm-hmm. focus. Some of that's to do with her really quite conservative politics, um, aside from her feminism. Um, but she came from kind of middle-class Newcastle family. Um, she moved to London quite young when I think she was about 20, 21. And she actually ended up earning her living through writing. Um, she started off in London relying on the Archbishop of Canterbury's support who gave her some money to help her. Mm-hmm. She she was probably tutored when she was young by her uncle, Ralph Hustell, who had connections with um, the school of philosophers known as the Cambridge Platonists, who were a really important early modern philosophical school, but they've become quite like very much unknown in the kind of mainstream mm. public knowledge uh, these days. Um, but they're, they're important at the time. They're important to us still. What she had that sort of background. Thi- what was the main important sort of concept that she took away from those folks? Probably. Her Platonism, her Platonist tendencies uh-huh. uh, generally. Um, so she's very much, in many ways, an idealist. Um, mm-hmm. She's emphatic about the role of human reason, how it can lead us to truth, um, where truth is and divinity are kind of identified. Mm-hmm. Um, she kind of emphasizes withdrawal from the material world. Um, from the bodily world and instead wants us to kind of train ourselves kind of an intellectual, spiritual practice that will lead us to the divine. Um, Interesting. Is that very so, um, concrete sort of uh, real direct personal experiences of, of the divine through the mind in that way? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, she really thinks that when you exercise your, 
and you start meditating and philosophizing, you'll mm-hmm. end up with this really quite ecstatic encounter with the divine. Um, some really interesting bits about that she writes about the kind of overwhelming pleasure of encountering God um, mm-hmm. and the divine yes, truth. I, as a Platonist, I'm wholly on board. As long as we don't call it Jesus, I think we're right on. We're right on the same page here so far. <laughs> I mean, I think Astor very much wants to call it Jesus. So. Yeah, no, I, I gather it's, it's very, it's very important to her that its name is Jesus, and I'm guessing probably that it's very white. Um, yeah, just, yeah, know, I think it's, there, it's right? interesting. Uh, I mean, yeah, that, that's an interesting, interesting point too. Yeah. Um, so to go back quickly to her to her life yeah. and uh-huh. her time in London, um, she corresponds with another philosopher, John Norris, who was associated with the Cambridge Platonists, who was associated with uh, Nicola Malabranche, um, who mm-hmm. is an occasionalist. Um, so she corresponds with him about the love of God, and those letters are later published. Um, and then she starts writing a serious proposal to the ladies, um, which is one of the work she's best known for, which is okay. a sort of feminist treatise um, and, and, and real quick, life. before we get yeah. before we get to the um, the feminist treaties, the occasionalists. I just want to make sure we understand for folks who aren't familiar, they're the ones who believe that like the mind body problem is solved by God interceding directly in every moment between the physical and the mental. Is that is that correct? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and the, and the key thing that comes from that for people like Norris um, and mm-hmm. sort of Astell, though she should change, she shifts position on this. One of the key things that comes from that is that we shouldn't direct our love or our love of desire um, to people or things in the world. We should only love God. Um, uh, so, so the argument there is that we should lo- we can love other things with a benevolent love, but we can only love God as our good or as something we should desire. Hmm. And so the letters that she writes to Norris are exactly exploring that issue, um, which she sort of agrees, but then she has trouble with it. Um, and it's sort of him explaining the position and her critiquing it, uh, and yet also kind of accepting it. But she shifts back and forth to, um, over how exactly uh-huh. how much she accept, accepts that. Um, so kind of a God is the divine is the end, only end in itself kind of view? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, but mm-hmm. it, it's quite hard, quite austere in that you know you shouldn't ever really love another person. Um, you can be kind of benevolent towards them, but you uh-huh. can't desire. Another Interesting. Person. Where do you feel like that austerity comes from? I was reading in a little bit of the background bio of her that she she experienced widespread civil unrest in much the same way that that Hobbes did, um, and that it may have influenced to some extent um, her views on friendship. Do you? Is that? Do you agree with that kind of interpretation? Uh, maybe I'm not sure. I think she, mm-hmm. but perhaps her kind of the, the financial instability she experienced um, mm-hmm. and the kind of insecurity she had as an unmarried young woman um, after her father died, kind of may have potentially contributed towards some of that sense of austerity or withdrawal. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, I find it difficult to try to identify what kind of personal effects, personal influences may have affected someone's philosophy. I think it's a, a difficult mm-hmm. task to 
she doesn't speak explicitly about like how she was born and uh, I think Hobbes has some sort of quote about how uh, he and despair were twins or something like that. Um, no, I mean, she does talk about her, you know, she, she's got these poems which haven't been, which are only published as part of a biography by Ruth Perry um, mm-hmm. called The Celebrated Mary Astle. She, she's got these poems she wrote when she was young, which, you know, are, are quite often quite anguished. Um, <laughs> talk about her suffer, kind of emotional and spiritual suffering. Um, but it's not, poems, yeah, yeah. But it's not clear that they're necessarily linked to um, much kind of wider, big picture external events. Um, mm-hmm. How did she get into so, doing yeah. philosophy? You mentioned that she uh, wasn't. Right. Well, usually when you think of people getting into philosophy like this, it's usually individuals who would be independently wealthy, it seems like, and like sufficiently allowed to engage in their eccentricities as to be a woman who thinks in the 1600s. Right. Like, how did she end up in the like other than being tutored a little bit? Was it just that like she had that one eccentric hook in with being tutored in that way and then got really into it? Or do we have any sense of how? Yeah. It seems like it, yeah. I think the tutoring would have given her this sort of grounding and, and this kind of knowledge base. Um, then you've got her connections that she builds when she gets into London. Um, mm-hmm. You've got her connection to John Norris. Um, it, it, yeah, it, it's not clear exactly what got her into it, but what enabled her to carry on doing it ended up being the patronage of kind of wealthy aristocratic women. Um, hmm. She was quite popular among intellectually minded women of the period. And it was their patronage and their kind of benefaction that allowed her to uh-huh. stay afloat financially and do the things that she was doing. Given her rather radical, somewhat radical, we'll talk about that in a second, uh, feminist views, did that mark the women who patronaged her as individuals who you know were um sort of causing conflict within their social class in that way oh, that's an interesting question i don't think that they were by and large understood as causing mm-hmm. conflict within their social class and i think that's partly again due to the fact that a lot of them were also very religiously minded very devout very known for their good works um mm-hmm. and also that Astell's kind of feminism isn't very oriented towards social upheaval or hmm. kind of widespread social change. I think that's one of the really interesting marks of it is that she's not advocating any kind of radical restructuring of society. What she's trying to do is to get women to work on themselves, um, mm-hmm. make themselves better and wiser people. Uh, she's not she's critical of aspects of society but she's not uh-huh. trying to get women together to overthrow the, the kind of male masters okay yeah so let's let's get there because it seems like 
she is in one from from one angle sort of revolutionary and from another angle very much not and i want to sort of get a broader sense of her philosophical interests and then narrow our way down to what seemed to be the most significant in terms of their potential impact on on the world so like mainly what would you say her interests were was it largely things related to uh the divine um whether were there specific issues within metaphysics or epistemology that she was interested in uh so i think she's got very broad interests and she Mm -hmm. writes like a really frightening range of of things uh <laughs> intimidating i might say i think she's got quite holistic interests actually i, I don't think i'd ad- identify her as being specifically concerned with any one area of philosophy she writes a lot of um you know she's got a metaphysical stance she's got an mm-hmm. epistemological stance she's got an ethical theory um she's got a philosophy of religion um that one of her major works is a book called The Christian Religion as professed by a daughter of the Church of England, which is a mm. sort of big book you know, outlining kind of Christian philosophy and Christian dogma. Mm-hmm. I think that I mean, she's also got these less overtly philosoph- philosophical political pamphlets as well, which are more directly about political events of the day. So she's interested in sort of current events and current politics too. I, I think what I find interesting about what she writes about is less the, the, the specific content and more the, the way that she uses um, the stances that she puts forward. So, so for mm-hmm. Astell, you know, yeah, when what, she what, writes what about, like, yeah, what are her basic stances in these various fields? Then, if like you know, so, she seemed to be very similar to Descartes, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. So she's um, got very strong Cartesian influence. Um, Mm-hmm. In terms of her kind of a lot of her methodology, a lot of her approach is Cartesian. She also takes quite a lot from um, of, of her methodology for thinking from the Port Royal Logic, um, which mm-hmm. is a Cartesian logic manual. Mm-hmm. Um, she's got Platonist and Augustinian influences. Um, she gets stuff from Malebranche and John Norris. Mm-hmm. So, so basic views that she's got. She's a kind of mind body dualist. Mm-hmm thinks that the mind is kind of the, the real self. The mind is identified with the soul and it's it's the real and true self, whereas the body is by and large something that kind of clogs the mind, kind of weighs us down, something that we shouldn't be so concerned about. Mm-hmm. Um, she's a rationalist rather than an empiricist, so she thinks that um, the way to gain knowledge is through contemplation, meditation, um, the use of reason rather than through sensory input. Um, Mm -hmm. So in a lot of ways, she's very sort of traditional or conventional in these kinds of approaches, it seems like, right? She's leaning towards the less revolutionary answers in a lot of these fields. To some extent, yeah. But I think what's interesting is that she then uses those things. Mm -hmm. She uses those stances to make her feminist arguments. Um, so Patricia Springborg, who, who writes a lot about Astill, sort of points, argues that Astill sort of uses the rejection of empiricism to mm-hmm. shore up her own feminism. So she says, so, oh. so Astill's got this really nice analysis of something she calls custom, mm-hmm. uh, which is a social effect. It's 
it's almost like a social habit. So everyone does things in a certain way. Um, you find it hard to do otherwise because uh, you might get laughed at or mocked. Um, it's just very hard to go against the way that everyone's doing something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's something that she really pinpoints as detrimental to women, um, women's ability to to think or to philosophize it, or to kind of be virtuous subjects uh, is uh-huh. custom. Now, for Astel, if you're an empiricist, if you get all your knowledge through experience um, and, and external things, right. then custom becomes really hard to escape because what you're getting in is is custom and false ideas and false beliefs about um, you know the way you ought to behave or the way things are or what's important. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas if you think that you can access kind of truth from within, uh, then there's a way of escaping customs influence uh, because you can withdraw from the wrong things that the external world is telling you is true and then you can access real truth on your own account. Yeah, and it, like the ridiculous thing is, it it seemed when I was reading some of the stuff that she had to argue for that like the the like in positions that she then has to take up are things like and and so women have the ability to think right y'all have like inner worlds of experiences and even though it's not like empirically provable and even though like empiricism might suggest that like women can't be rational in the way that men can it seems like you would say that would be the result of these kinds of customs um instead mm-hmm. and it's just it, it, it's a little baffling. I don't know how you, how you take, how you deal with this, but like it comes out across to me as baffling to just like read, to think, Oh, at some point somebody had to argue that women have minds and that like before that people just didn't think that for the large part, like what was going on before this happened? Yeah. I, I mean, I think it's less, uh, I, I think very few people would have wanted to put forward a sort of serious, that the, proposition mm-hmm. that women genuinely have no minds or genuinely uh-huh. have no subjectivity. Uh, I, th- I think there is the, the view that she's really pushing back against is the idea that women are intellectually inferior and incapable mm-hmm. of reaching the same kind of intellectual heights as men. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's interesting, I think, is that I still, to some extent, it accepts that women at the moment, or at the moment in, in her time, mm-hmm. are inferior in some ways and do have these problems so she says that you know you can see that women have certain ethical vices that they're more prone to um they're often vain they're often obsessed with fashion or attracting men's attention hmm. um, inclined to sort of gossip and frothy conversation they don't think properly um, they're not properly religious because they don't understand the basis of their faith she, she says yeah that's all true but it's not intrinsic to who they are it's not because they are women Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so what she's doing is kind of pushing back on the idea that women's minds or women's souls are inherently inferior to men's. And instead she's saying mm-hmm. this is the effect of miseducation on the one hand and custom on the other. Uh, so women are trained up to believe that certain things are important, like looking beautiful or um looking or being appealing to men and they're not educated in the things that would actually be useful to them or actually be good, which Hmm. rational thought, uh, the the basis of their faith. Now, would she still, 
adopt some kinds of gender essentialism? Would she say, for example, that like, uh, you know, women should still manage, you know, raising children or the home or something just that, like similar to Wollstonecraft that they're better at doing so if they're allowed to be educated while doing it? It seems so. Uh, she's certainly clear that she, she's not interested in women, um, you know, becoming MPs or lawyers or anything. Um, mm-hmm. She's quite explicit about that in a serious proposal. She sort of addresses men and say, you know, we don't seek to do the things that you're doing necessarily. All we're asking is to have autonomy over our own minds um, and power over ourselves. I mean, uh-huh. I think you've got to ask the, the extent to which some of that's a rhetorical device. Um, uh-huh. There's a certain amount of concession going on and saying that I'm not being that threatening because all, all I'm really doing is making women better at doing the things that women mm-hmm. ought to be doing. Um, but she certainly isn't actively advocating for a you know, big shift in society. If you'll uh, if you'll permit me a small pop culture diversion, my wife and I have been really enjoying um, Miss America, which is Kate Blanchett doing oh, Phyllis Schlafly, um, and you know Phyllis Schlafly is just a, a, a monster for, in my mind in terms of the history of, of women's rights in America, and it's interesting watching her kind of humanized as this kind of separate but equal you know, separate spheres kind of approach with traditional conservatism and a lot of, you know, mm-hmm. the, the fear-based conservatism built on top of it. And I just wonder if, like, a story of Mary would look, a story of Estelle would look very similar in that kind of way. Yeah, but I mean, possibly. I, th- I think it's hard to imagine what Estelle might say if, for instance, she was now in our time. Um hmm uh, I wouldn't want to say that, um, you know, I, I, I'm not sure that she'd be dedicated to, kind of, co- like, committed to the idea of retaining a separate mm-hmm. sphere so much as she's perhaps pessimistic about the possibility of changing things. I mean, okay. in, you know, she's got this text, Reflections Upon Marriage, where she's very critical of the effects of the marital institution on women. But in that, where she's probably got some of her most sort of pointed invective and rhetoric about women's oppression, um, she, she talks about women not um, not having enough you know, wherewithal to group together and throw off their chains. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so it's more perhaps, or at least part of it, seems to be this pessimism about whether or not change is possible. Um, so limiting mm-hmm. her ambitions for women to what she knows is possible, which is individual women um, changing themselves. So how does this, uh, we didn't, we, we talked most about her epistemology and, and metaphysics earlier. I'm curious, can you tie that back a little bit to her potentially what her ethical views are and her political views might be? Is it, mm-hmm. yeah. How would, how would you characterize her in those, in those spheres? Uh, so, I think what's interesting about her epistemology as it relates to her ethics and her feminism is that for her, kind of knowledge isn't kind of ethically inert. Mm-hmm. Knowledge is something that's ethically transformative. Um, I think I already mentioned that she sort of identifies truth, um, like truth on a deep level with divinity itself. Um, so there's this you know, ethical relationship between attaining knowledge and 
kind of becoming a purer self. And she's got this mm-hmm. bit where she says that you can't attain knowledge without purifying yourself. Um, and the more knowledge you get, the purer you will become. Um, I think hmm. that mm-hmm. this ties into what I see as her kind of the ethic of the self that she's advocating, um, the extent to which she wants women to practice constituting themselves as ethical subjects in, in a way that they've been um, abstracted from doing by custom and by society. Mm-hmm. They can achieve some level of this kind of ethical coherence uh, that, she wants, that she wants to them by withdrawing from the world of custom um, mm-hmm. and meditating on certain, certain topics. Um, and, and then the topics that you meditate on can also have the effect of, of of changing you ethically. So one example is that she has a couple of pages in a serious proposal where she writes about kind of meditating on, on dualism, mm-hmm. um, how if you follow her line of argument, you'll realise that the kind of the soul is a really important thing, the body is just its inferior servant. And mm-hmm. then you'll realise that your soul and your mind is what really matters. And now when you realise that it's your mind that's really important, um, you're going to stop being so concerned with what your body looks like um, and you're going to be less concerned with fashion and wealth and you're going to be less concerned with whether men find you attractive. So what you're saying is she's really a Buddhist is what I'm taking away from this. Perhaps. I think she'd hate it, but... <laughs> I mean, she'd really hate that comparison. Yes. No, I mean, you know, it's kind of a, it's a Christian virtue deontology kind of thing, it sounds like. Um, sort just... of. I, th- I think I'd associate her more with... I, I think her deontology comes across more strongly in her book on the Christian religion. I think mm-hmm. in A Serious Proposal, you get far more of a sense of this ethic of the self, um, okay. which, yes, I think you can think of as a virtue ethic. I tend to think of more as a... a, a this way in which women are ethically obliged to transform their their own selves um, to attain knowledge. Um, to... Yeah, the, the, you gave me a term earlier. You wanted to talk about philosophy as a feminist practice. Is that what that means in this particular context? Yeah, I think so. So it's, it's like philosophy is something that you can do for ourselves. It's something that women ought to do uh, to, mm-hmm. to think through these meditations on stuff like dualism. And then it has the effect of um, orientating you toward orientating women towards truth and away from custom. And, and it's custom and miseducation which um, kind of make kind of ethically warp them, and the things that make women vain and foolish and mm-hmm. make them believe that marriage and men are the only things that matter. If you practice philosophy and you're orientated towards truth and said that's what you're going to be concerned about. And then the things that you realise, like the truth of dualism, mm-hmm. the importance of the, the divine, um, will further encourage you to, um, to to look for those things rather than worldly mm-hmm. things which are structured by misogyny. And I think one of the things actually that Astell has to give us um, sort of modern feminists is this focus on how misogyny and how a misogynistic society doesn't just kind of affect women materially. So it doesn't just kind of, it's not just a matter of, kind of lacking rights or material oppression. 
it can affect uh, women's ethical constitution and affect their very selves. I think that's something that Assel recognises, which is maybe not so often acknowledged in a lot of mainstream feminist discourse today. Hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's definitely valuable. And you see that sort of attempt to to push back. I mean, you, you see, I guess, in stuff like um, Down Girl uh, approaches mm. to those sort of social um, implications. Um, so that that it sounds like that's sort of her main model then, right? Trying to uh, readjust customs with regard to women so that they can be sort of more fully flourishing women. Is there anything else to the model that you think is particularly essential that we want to take away here? Uh, I think there's an interesting, in, in part one of a serious proposal, so she's got this individual regimen that she thinks women can follow to become, mm. of, just develop themselves, which is this philosophical regimen where you meditate, you become virtuous. As well as that, she advocates a kind of separate all-female community that women could live in in order hmm. to practice this. Um, and this is right. perhaps like what she's best like nunneries, known for. essentially, right? A, a bit, yeah. And that's what she gets mocked for quite a lot of the time because um, people are like, well, you're just being, a, this, this is a bit Catholic. It's um, a little bit Catholic. <laughs> it's a little bit Catholic. Um, <laughs> and it, it, but it is, she, she relates it more to the idea of a monastery in the text itself. Um, mm-hmm. And there certainly is that sense of, it's a religious life. It's an intellectual life. Um, it, it's not wholly like a, a convent or monastery in that it's not intended to be necessarily permanent for the women living there. They might kind of come there, spend a time there, um, become good people, and then they'll become more morally equipped to go out into the world and resist hmm. the effects of custom. Uh-huh. Um, but I think what's really interesting about it is that she, she identifies this need for it she says that you know in the busy life that women live in um it's really hard to find the time and the space to stop and reflect because um, mm-hmm. there's always stuff happening there's a world there's glitzy things that are going to distract you there are men who are trying to marry you um, <laughs> yes they will <laughs> we've all been there <laughs> yeah um, no it's pain so, so what you need if you're a woman is this space with other women um, who are encouraging you to educate yourself and become virtuous. So whereas in the outside world, you might be laughed at um, and people might make jokes about you if you're kind of interested in philosophy or you want to become virtuous in this space, it's going to be a supportive space with other women uh, where men can't come and harass you, uh, where, where you have this, the time and space to learn and reflect I'm going to imagine that it's like more like the Benny Gesserits in Dune rather than just like a classic <laughs> nunnery. It's a little more fun for my my mind canon. But I mean, it raises a question, and it raises a question that I realize is a loaded question when asking about an early feminist. Um, what, did she marry? Right? Did Mary ever marry? Was she interested in marriage? With no, men? not at all. So, so she, she didn't marry. She, she lived single all her life. Um, and I think I mentioned briefly, but she wrote this tract called Reflections Upon Marriage, where she considers the institution of marriage and she argues that in the most part, it's kind of detrimental to women. Um, hmm. Women who marry, putting themselves under the total authority of a husband, and often that authority is exercised badly. Um, she, she even ends up by saying that, you know, a woman who really 
thinks properly about marrying before she gets married will either make sure she chooses really, really carefully or that she won't get married at all. Uh-huh. Um, That's good advice. <laughs> there's a little bit of tension there in that she also thinks that marriage is a divinely ordained institution um, mm. and that if you are married, um, that there's no way out of it. You know, she said she's not going to countenance divorce <laughs> get it right only... the first time because there's no do-overs well yeah exactly she says that the only remedy for a woman if she is in a bad marriage is to kind of take joy in the exercise of her virtue and the knowledge she that really was she's a crypto catholic gonna... <laughs> and, and the knowledge that you're going to have a you're going to go to heaven um... mary i don't think you understood the important takeaways of anglicanism <laughs> but one of the key <laughs> ones was there's definitely do-overs <laughs> um so yeah, she never married herself. Uh, she she very much emphasises uh, throughout her texts the benefits, uh, the beneficial qualities of, of friendships between women, as opposed to kind of relationships between men and women. Um, mm-hmm. Friendships between women can have this sort of wonderful, mutually supportive kind of. But as far as we know, they were just were. friendships for her. Uh, I think it is an interesting question. I, I think that. You know, going back to what I was saying about Foucault earlier and and the history of mm-hmm. sexuality, I think there's no meaningful way in which it, it be possible to kind of label Astel using any modern mm-hmm. sexuality terms. I think you could say things like her her emotional relationships are with women. She's sort of emotionally she's dedicated to emotional connections with other women um, mm-hmm. rather than with men. Um, And, and she has she she writes in the letters with Norris about um, very intense emotional connections to to female friends and the feelings of rejection she has if mm-hmm. a friendship isn't returned. Um, mm, so I think on, on an emotional, in terms of her emotional relationships, I think she is committed and oriented towards women. But I, I don't uh-huh. think we could say much beyond that. Okay, fair fair enough. We'll we'll leave it there. I think it's <laughs> clearly Amazon needs to option a series, a limited run, I think, or something, <laughs> just to flesh it out a bit. Um, so let me ask you about her. I want to ask a little bit about ba- ba- background and then a couple of works in particular that you think are valuable for her. So does she have any precursors that you can point to for her feminist work that you think are particularly significant? I came across um, the name um, uh, Bethusa uh, McKinn as an, as an feminist before her or also advocated for equality. Is there any any way to know if she had any connection um, to that tradition or if she was kind of doing this from whole cloth? Uh, I don't think she's doing it from whole cloth. Um, I, I'm not sure. She doesn't mention uh, Bathsheba Macken in her texts, um, mm-hmm. but she is, I think it, I'd be surprised if she wasn't aware of some of those precursors. I mean, as well as Bathsheba Macken, you've got um, Anna Maria van Schumann, um, sort of an earlier Dutch philosopher who argued for women's education, Um at the same time as Estill, you've got Damaris Masham, who's actually in some ways her rival, who's um, a close friend of Locke's, um, who also argues for women's education. Um, mm-hmm. and, and in general, in the early modern period, um, kind of following Descartes, you've got a real upsurgence in women doing philosophy. I mean, they're not all doing feminist philosophy. Um, mm-hmm. 
but there is this increased access and this increased um, capacity or increased um, ability for women to, to, to take part in philosophy. Um, she certainly is aware of some great women. Um, she, she mentions Anne Dacier in, I think, A Serious Proposal, who's um, mm -hmm. a writer and translator. And I think she's probably aware of some of those precursors, but doesn't, uh, by and large, doesn't actively draw from them. Okay. You mentioned Locke there. I was curious. Could you say a little bit about her beef with Locke? <laughs> yeah, so she's quite, she, she, she's got this tension with Locke on a variety of topics. Um, and it's quite explicit about engaging with him. Mm. Uh, she's got a whole political thing with him, which I, I know slightly less about. Um She's very critical of Locke's empiricism and his psychology. Um, I think I talked a bit earlier about this, how she kind of sees empiricism um, as something that lets in custom and makes it difficult for women to escape custom. Uh huh. Does she reject the tabula got, rasa view? So yeah, yeah, absolutely. Is what she should mm -hmm. be objecting to. Um, mm -hmm. She's also critical of him on a, a religious level. She's very critical of his. Um, claim that thinking matter is conceptually possible. Um, and she spends a, a, like one of the appendices to um, a Christian religion, she spends kind of laying into Locke on that point. Um, she also has, uh, I think, uh, again, I mentioned Damaris Masham, who's um, a, a close companion of Locke and also a philosopher in her own right. Mm -hmm. And um, Astell reads uh, Damaris Masham's text, um, a discourse concerning the love of God, and she takes it to be by Locke. And she actually thinks that Locke is having a dig at her through the discourse. Because um, hmm. the discourse concerning the love of God is overtly aimed at John Norris's view of love, but it seems to mention um, people who want to be cloistered up in monasteries. And whether or not it is a dig at Astell, Astell seems to take it to be a dig. Um, so she sort of responds to some of that in the Christian religion, assuming that it's Locke, but actually it's Damaris Masham. Um, so it's one of those rare, uh, rare moments in early modern philosophy where women, two women mm. philosophers, are sort of engaging with each other, albeit not huge, not very directly. I feel like there's a pretty sick epic rap battle to be had in all of this. <laughs> that sounds like like fun stuff. Um, well, while we're talking about her her fighting, um, what the fuck is going on with John's with Jonathan Swift satirizing her? Swift, excuse me. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't so. So Swift satirizes her. Um, I think I think it's him who the parodies her under the name of Madonella. Um, uh -huh. But it, it's not just Swift. It's at, at the time there's, there's a few kind of theatrical parodies. Um, Vastel or of other written parodies because I, I think a lot of people, a lot of men in particular, sort of really took issue with a woman who was um, happily living a single life and writing about this proposal for women to kind of remain unmarried and come and live with her community of women. Um, I think she's portrayed as being this quite austere, this kind of austere old maid. Um, Swift and others. Um, I think Daniel Defoe also kind of criticizes her. Um, I think he's sort of a bit scathing about her proposal for women. 
um, mm-hmm. a women's institution. And then he puts forward a kind of similar proposal of his own, without really acknowledging that it's <laughs> it, it's similar. Um, <laughs> so there's a bunch of incels and reply guys, is what you're telling me. Sixteen <laughs> hundreds is full of the exact same. Uh, <laughs> toxic uh, yeah. masculinity responses to women doing anything yeah yeah and then the interesting thing that happens is um george barclay actually sort of plagiarizes her did he um, sort I'm of shocked. yeah so he puts shocked, together he puts together a collection called the ladies library um uh, and he includes lots of extracts from other texts and he includes extracts from a serious proposal but without citing her or kind of mm. naming his sources and he cuts out bits that are a bit Malabranchian because um, mm. he himself wants to distinguish himself from Malabranches. <laughs> but he sort of kind of quasi-plagiarises her but also is responsible for keeping that in circulation. I wonder if Barclay thinks that plagiarism is acceptable because they're all ideas in the mind of God. It's just, right, how could God plagiarise <laughs> itself, right? <laughs> So as we're getting towards the end here, what would you say are the major impacts of um, Estelle's work on um, the world? Do you feel like you see her ideas replicated down the line by other key people? Interestingly, I think her impact was quite limited to her time. Um, She was very well known among, as I say, the kind of intellectual women of the period. She was satirised, she was talked about. But after her death, she faded from view pretty quickly um, and then mm-hmm. only really gets talked about again in the late 20th century. Um, you, know, you have people starting to work on her again from the 70s or 80s and then there's been a real boom in um, academic scholarship on her in the last 10 years or so. Can we call this astrology? Um, Is that the right term? Astrology. Yeah. Could do. I, I might do from now. Astellicism. <laughs> um, uh, but I don't think that it's not clear that she's had much of a direct influence on the development of subsequent feminism, um, uh-huh. which, again, I think is a shame, exactly because I think that her feminist focuses are kind of offer an interesting counterpoint to a feminism which is more interested in external change or. Of, or rights or um, mm-hmm. external things that affect women. I, th- I think that her feminism that really focuses on women's selves and their you know, women's ability to be kind of fully formed subjects and ethical subjects is something that could be taken up now with kind of almost as much uh-huh. kind of use as it would have done then. Is that something that you're developing in your own work as well? I'm trying to. So in my thesis, I'm actually, um, I'm reading Astil through a Foucauldian lens, um, but mm-hmm. I'm also trying to put her into dialogue with kind of a, a modern feminist thought and think through um, the opportunities and problems that poses. Because, uh, you know, there, there are ways in which um, there are a lot of problems with, with that approach, with her approach. Um, she's quite classist she's quite elitist um mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so trying to think through what we might want to take from Astle um is, is a really interesting project to think through yeah for folks who are not experts um are there any of her works that you think they could find valuable to read directly 
or are there particular analyses of her work that you think are accessible for folks who might want to learn more about her? Uh, I think the best thing would be to read the texts directly. I think um, Reflections Upon Marriage and A Serious Proposal are the most accessible and the most readable. Um, Mm -hmm. I I think it's really nice just going in and realising how funny she can be. At at times Hmm. she's got this really kind of austere, quite po-faced and at other times she's just incredibly witty and ironic and (laughs) funny as she pokes fun at men and and male-dominated society. Just imagine Jonathan Um, Swift being like, women can't be funny. (laughs) Um, I know Reflections Upon Marriage is all available online. Um, I suspect a serious proposal is too. Um, Mm -hmm. Although one of the issues with, with, with women like this is that there aren't, very easily available printed editions of those texts. Um, you, you can track them down, but they're not, you, you don't just go to your bookshop and get a serious proposal to the ladies. Um, mm. Similarly, there's been very little written on her that's not academically focused. Um, there's like, a couple of books of chapters about her. Um, mm-hmm. There's a book about some historically rebellious women I saw in the bookshop. I th- can't remember exactly what it was called. It might be something like Revolting Women or mm-hmm. something that had a chapter on her. Um, there's the upcoming book anthology, The Philosopher Queens. Um, Super excited about that one. Which, Got that which I contributed to the chapter on Astle too. Yes, I believe that's how we um, ended up in touch was you uh, were recommended to me as someone who had written a chapter in that book. Oh, fab. There you go. Um, but there's not that much that's like not academic that's out there about her. I mean, there's... Her biography um, by Ruth Perry, which is a really great work of scholarship called The Celebrated Mary Astle, um, kind of mm-hmm. available secondhand. I don't think there's a, again, I don't think there's a current version of it. Um, academically, if you wanted, if you did want to delve into some of that literature, um, Jacqueline Broad's done some great, uh, is one of the major Astle scholars. Um, there's a really good book about um, reading Astle as a virtue theorist. Um mm. Um, Great. Patricia, Patricia Springborg does a lot about her political side and is kind of really good at contextualizing her history. Great. I think that's plenty for people to to get started <laughs> on for their astrology pro- uh, projects. <laughs> um, is there any final things you would like, any kind of summary you want to give for uh, Astel before we move on to the enlightening round? Um, nothing I can think of right off oh. my head. I think I've covered yeah, a decent amount. Yeah, no, that was amazing. That was wonderful. That was very in-depth, a lot of fun. Um, so now, unfortunately, I have to torture you. Um, so for folks who are not familiar, this was previously called the lightning round because I was <laughs> too dumb to realize that it should clearly be called the enlightening round. So what, what I'm going to do here is I'm going to give you a list of things. You're going to tell me if those things are real or not real. Those are your two options. You use no middle ground. You can't well, have. What sense of, what, what sense of reality no. are we? There's, there's no defining <laughs> of the word real, which is both a blessing and a curse because you can hedge your way out of it afterwards <laughs> all you like. But for now, real or not real. Do you understand? Yeah, I think so. Do you feel ready? Uh huh. Okay, so let's just check. Is anything real? Yeah. Okay. I think so. <laughs> It's confidence right off the bat. So let's find out what's real. Okay. Is the external world real? Yes. Are colors real? Yes. 
Is phenomenal consciousness real? Yes. Free will? Uh, yes, with a caveat. Uh, no caveats. Selves <laughs> or persons? Selves or persons, uh, yes. Real. Okay. Genders? Yes, real. Races? Uh, yeah. Again, bit of... Please, I caveat, but yes. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Species? Yes. Morality? Yes. Rights? I'm going to sort of say no, but again, okay, very okay. much in the middle. That's all right. That's all right. Knowledge? Yes. God or gods? No... <laughs> society <laughs> uh, yes okay numbers yes fictional characters no okay holes as in a hole in the ground yes chairs yes sandwiches yes Science? Yeah, I guess. Natural laws? <laughs> no. <laughs> Beauty? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Causality? Leading towards no. Okay. And finally, dharmas in the Buddhist sense. Little uh, bits of experience, direct experience. Uh, can sort of go Mo- yes, but I don't know enough about prefer. it. Yeah, it's fine. It's just there to catch the Buddhists who to say no to everything <laughs> else first. Um, well, you survived. How do you feel? Uh, I feel like I've presented a very odd um, worldview. <laughs> yeah, we all have odd worldviews. That's part of that's that's an important takeaway from the enlightening round. Um, do you feel the need to clear clear your name on any of those in particular, or you just want to let the let the anxiety sit? Out there oh, the I think I'll just sit with it. And... Okay. Well, that's been great. I appreciate it, Simone. Do you want to let folks know where they can find your work? Oh, yeah, sure. Um, I'm on Twitter um, at SimoneWebUCL. Um, if you want to read anything I've written, um, I've got an academia.edu page, um, which mm-hmm. has one of my published articles on Astil on it. Um, so I've got an article out in Metaphilosophy about... Um, philosophy as kind of a feminist spirituality and critical practice for Mary Astell, um, or those words in some order thereof. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've also got an article about Damaris Masham, who I mentioned, um, and about her letters with Locke. Um, I think I'm on various other platforms, but if you go to Twitter, that'll be the main place to get there. Okay, great. I highly recommend follow on Twitter. So um, thank you all. Thank you very much for coming on. This has been a lot of fun. Hey, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been great. As always, I'd like to thank our listeners and patrons who make the show possible. I'd like to thank some new patrons and some returning patrons. Thanks to Osmium, Lost Remote Control, Theo, Fweth, Full Name, Stephen McKendry, and 
We're still getting paid, so making sure you are too. That's a really touching sentiment. Uh, Thanks also to Jonathan Yance-Jones for increasing his pledge. Um, And as always, I must thank our top patrons at the $20 tier level. Jude Law's Canadian accent in Existence makes my pussy throb. Not everyone, uh, sorry, now everyone knows about Camp Quest. Check out blacknonbelievers.com, strong suggestion. Uh, Chad T., Brenda Goodman, and Jesse Urbinowitz. And at our top-tier evil cult leader levels, we've got our longtime friend Dave Maslich. And our mystery patron has revealed himself to be the venerable Richard Milhouse Nixon. So I imagine he's riddled with phlebitis, and we're happy to have him here. Uh, Thank you all so much for supporting the show. If you'd like to support the show, please leave us a five-star rating and a review on whatever podcast app you use, though especially iTunes helps a lot. Uh, Follow us on Twitter at ETVPod. And if you notice a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you our bonus book club content, which I promise is returning now that I've finished moving. Um, And most importantly, in these trying times especially, remember, you are the void, and the void is you. (laughs) 